Have you ever found yourself discouraged because you didn't have what you thought you needed? Or have you ever been disappointed because you didn't have enough? And this can, this is, this can cover a broad range in your life. Like there's, there's a lot of different things you could say, I've been discouraged because I, I didn't have what I thought I needed or I, I'm disappointed because I didn't have enough. Have you ever found yourself struggling with lack? If you have, raise your hands. Perfect. The title of today's message is The Lord Over Your Lack. And I'm going to teach you a lesson from one meal today that I really believe is going to change your life. How many of you know that God's word is sharper than a double-edged sword to pierce even the hardest hearts, to get inside and expose the lies and the truth and to, and to, to put in its place something life-giving? And so we believe that. Go with me to John chapter 6. Jesus, uh, after this, Jesus crossed over the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him whenever, wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. So a huge crowd followed him. Then Jesus, verse 3, climbed a hill and sat down with the disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that with this huge crowd? Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000. Could have easily been 10 to 15,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. After he did the same with the fish, and they all ate as much as they wanted, they all ate as much as they wanted. After everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. Six lessons from one meal today. You ready? Number one, miracles are attractive. It says in verse 2 to 5 that a huge crowd kept following him wherever he went. So it didn't matter wherever Jesus was going, the crowd was still going to follow him. That, that was a nuclear bomb that you just missed. It didn't matter wherever Jesus was going to go, they kept following Jesus. You could underline that, that statement, they kept following Jesus. Maybe you need to keep following Jesus. They kept following him wherever he went because, this is why, because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Then Jesus climbed the hill, sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Verse 5, Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. 
Hear me. Keep following Jesus. Keep looking for Jesus. In every situation, in every circumstance, look for Jesus. When you're discouraged, look for Jesus. When you're disappointed, keep following Jesus. The enemy's just trying to get you to quit. That's all it is. He just wants you to quit. Don't quit. Keep following. If he climbs a mountain, go with him. If he gets down in a valley, go with him. Miracles are attractive. If you remember last week, we talked about how Jesus said that the works he accomplished proved that he was sent from the Father. So every work, every act of faith that Jesus did or work of faith that he did was proof that he was from above. It was proof of his deity. I mean, meaning this, it's proof that he was, he was created and, and he is not created. He, is, he existed in heaven. He has heavenly authority. Every time Jesus did something, it was proof that he was from heaven. I left you last week with a challenge to act on the works that Jesus gives you because he in turn gives us works to do. If I need to remind you, Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the boss of the church. (laughs) I'm not, and you're not. We do what the boss says to do. We don't do what we want to do and expect the boss to accept what we want to do. Too many churches are getting in trouble today because of that. But the capital C church is the body of Christ, and we're to go wherever the head goes. Because if you ever saw a body running around without a head, it looks kind of weird. So I challenged you to act on the works that Jesus gives you so that the people around you would be proven to that Jesus is from above. Here's the thing for today. People need to know that Jesus is real. He's not a religious uh, organization. Jesus is real. And everything everybody's grasping for today, every distraction they're getting distracted by, everything that they're looking to to help them is falling short. And it's supposed to because it's not Jesus. So when Jesus tells you to do something, you need to understand that there's a repercussion to that. That there's a consequence to that. He wants you to act in a faith and do something that he tells you to do to prove to somebody, including yourself, that he's greater than anything on the planet. So if you don't act, people don't get to see, no one gets proven to, including you. So when you don't act, you create an environment to breed more discouragement. So here we see a huge crowd following Jesus because of what he was doing. That's the why. They wanted to see what he was doing. Could it be they were looking to see what Jesus was going to do next because what he was doing was real and everything else they experienced in their life was not real? Now, some of you may be thinking, well, it's not good for people to follow Jesus only for what he can do. 
okay. Let me, let me speak to that real quick. Because some people have, have had an issue. At one time, I had an issue because people would follow Jesus just for the signs, wonders, and miracles. I'm like, y'all are a bunch of junkies. You need, to, you need to get past that and get in your Bible and get a relationship with Jesus. And, and there's truth to both sides of that. But, but listen to me today. If somebody's following Jesus only because of what he can do, man, let them go. Let them follow Jesus and let them follow the signs and the wonders and the miracles. Why? Because they're still learning about Jesus. They're still going to get to know Jesus. I would, I would even argue which, which is better, to have followers who will follow him because of what he does or to have followers of Jesus who follow him because of what they know, but yet they struggle to believe that he can do what he does. Which is better? In the world that we live today, in the context of America today, in the context of Eunice today, which is better, to have a, a bunch of people who know Jesus but will struggle to believe that he can do the impossible or to have somebody who just met Jesus and believes that Jesus can do anything? Remember the two great witnesses from last week, the word and the works of Jesus, John told us, were greater witnesses than John the Baptist himself. Words, scripture, teachings, your Bible, and works. Miracles, signs, wonders. Serving. Works. John said it last week. If you don't believe me, go back and listen to last week's message or read chapter 5. John said this. There's two greater, Jesus actually said it, there's two greater witnesses than John. My words and my works. Now, there's no point in history that Jesus dropped off the works. As some denominations believe. Well, he don't do that anymore. Says who? Go tell that to somebody who received a miracle. They'll slap you in the mouth. My words and my works are greater witnesses to who? To the lost world around us than even John the Baptist was. So no matter why people decide to follow Jesus, whether it's because of what he does or because of who he is, it is still our responsibility to disciple them. So heaven forbid I ever think down on somebody for following Jesus only for what he can do. Yet rather, what, what, what if I stood up and, and invited them into a discipleship relationship and then taught them as they're experiencing what he can do, taught them who he is? Oh my gosh, that sounds like words and works. Oh, you read your Bible and you believe for miracles? What the heck? You might be a different Christian. So the attractiveness of the church, you see the church should be attractive, but the attractiveness of the church should be healings and miracles and signs and scripture and serving and blessing 
That should be the attractiveness of church, not smoke and lights and mirrors and good-looking preachers. No fear here. Y'all are in safe hands. So number one, miracles are attractive. Number two, the challenge is a test. (laughs) The challenge is a test. Look at verse five to nine. It says, turning to Philip. I bet Philip was like, man, why I didn't go over there by Peter? I'm standing next to Jesus. I get caught up in a challenge. Turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip for he already knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up and said, there's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish, but what is that compared to this huge crowd? Jesus presents a challenge to Philip in order to see how Philip would respond. Did you catch that? Jesus presented a challenge to Philip to see how Philip would respond. What if every challenge you face is not from the devil? What if Jesus presents you with a challenge to see how you're going to respond? Even though he probably already knows, maybe he's setting you up to see how, so that you can see how you respond. Because if you're like me, sometimes you're surprised in a good way or a bad way of what comes out of you. Can I get a better amen? I didn't know that was in there. I'm sorry, y'all. Jesus already knew what he was going to do. But yet he presented Philip with a challenge. Jesus brought the challenge to Philip. Nobody was talking about feeding these 5,000 men. Nobody said there was an issue. None of the disciples came and said, hey, man, these guys are hungry. The people weren't even screaming, according to Scripture, the people weren't even screaming for something to eat. So it's almost like Jesus created a challenge You see, Jesus knows his people well. (laughs) I said he knows us well. He knows us better than we realize. And he knew that Philip was more analytical than the others. You see, for Philip to come up with a conclusion that even if we worked for months, we would not have enough money to feed them, Philip did some quick thinking. It's believed that Philip was very analytical. Like he could, he could solve problems in his mind very rapidly. How many of you know people like that? How many of you are not those people? <laughs> it takes me a minute <laughs> or 10 But it's believed that Philip was really analytical. He he looked over the crowd, did a quick estimation of how many people, and he goes, even if we worked for months, there's no way we could feed all these people. And for him, that was it. That was his conclusion. He made a quick analytical decision that said it's not going to happen. And that was his conclusion. 
I've watched people for years who are analytical struggle to take steps of faith. And if you're analytical, you know that to be true. Because if, it, if you're not careful, you live behind the, the understanding that if it doesn't register here, it can never register out there. And so then you end up letting your ability to analyze cripple your ability to walk by faith. Come on, you know it's true. I'm not condemning you. I'm just exposing what's going on inside of you. I am grateful for analytical people. You weren't born that way on accident, by the way. Jesus made, Jesus made Philip analytical. The Bible says he knit him together in his mother's womb. He put a little bit of, a little extra analyzing in there than he did some of the rest of us, right? So it's not a mistake. It's not a bad thing to be analytical. It's just a good thing to be analytical and walk by faith. And I've watched some of my friends struggle for years. I've seen it especially in the area of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, in particular to tongues, because tongues don't make sense to our natural mind. And so I've seen many friends struggle to receive a prayer language because they can't make sense of it right here. And that's who Philip was. Philip looked at the challenge, analyzed it, and said, there's no way. And he stopped right there. He didn't come up with a substitute. He didn't come up with a different scenario. Another solution to the problem. He just said it can't happen. And I wonder today how many of us, when God approaches us with a challenge, quickly analyze it and say, can't happen. It can't happen. I've seen it the clearest when it comes to marriage. When one partner in the marriage crosses a line and the other one all of a sudden can't see how it will ever turn around. Or maybe you've struggled with the same issues for years and years and years and years and you've come to the conclusion that it will never change. And if you've done that, you're probably, if you're still in that marriage, you probably have learned the art of compromising, learning how to cope and live in this scenario that in your mind will never change. And you're living a very complicated life because your faith is not able to express itself and God, and open a door for God to jump in and move. You're bound by your analytics. I bet Mary and Martha thought it was over for Lazarus after four days when Jesus didn't come. All but after Jesus came, I wonder how they believed then. So there's two characters in the story. There's Philip and then there's Andrew. 
Philip was analytical. Andrew seems to be more practical. Nothing wrong with either one of those. Andrew finds a boy, a young boy, the Bible says, who has some bread and some fish. Five loaves and two fish. Andrew does what Philip doesn't do. Andrew takes whatever he has and he brings it to Jesus. Can you see the difference? Philip came to a conclusion that what lies in front of me is impossible. Andrew found something and brought his something to Jesus and he did it while he understood that it was not enough. Oh boy. Can you tell the difference between Philip and Andrew? I don't think Jesus was looking for any of them to bring the whole solution at one time. Andrew makes a statement. I got five loaves and two fish. (laughs) But what is that compared to the size of this crowd? In other words, he would say it's not enough. Philip said it's impossible. Andrew said it's not enough. Oh, but Jesus. Even though it was not enough, he still brought it to Jesus. This is where we can get into trouble. When we get discouraged because we can't see the solution or the resources to the challenge, we usually just sit down in discouragement. Well, if it's not enough, there ain't no use in even trying. If I've come to the conclusion that it's impossible, I'm just going to sit down right here in this discouragement. And the longer you sit in discouragement, the stickier it gets. Until eventually discouragement is the thing that rules your life. So then you're stuck. In a bad place. In a pit of discouragement. It's where we get into trouble. So let me give you a different s- solution or a different scenario. What, what if, instead of just sitting in discouragement, what if we stood up with just a little bit of faith that we have and, and start to talk to Jesus about our discouragement? Instead of sitting with it and letting it become my best friend and my closest companion, what if I got up and I said, Jesus, I don't like this discouragement. I feel like it's pulling me down. I don't know how to get away from it, but I don't like it. Can you help me with it? What if we just change that? What if we just said, I'm not going to sit here anymore. I'm going to trust Jesus. Somehow, I'm going to bring my discouragement to Jesus and say, can you do something with this? Yeah. 
Lord, help me. When you can't see a solution, instead of just saying, oh, well, and it's coming to a conclusion that it's the way it's going to be. Instead of doing that, can you just go to Jesus and say, can you help me to see what I can't see? Oh my gosh, it could be one of the greatest prayers in your life because all of a sudden you'll start to see beyond your circumstance and beyond your challenge and you'll start to see what Jesus sees. But if you don't pray it, if you don't step against it and you don't step up in it, then you'll never see it. It's hard to see when you're sitting in discouragement because all you see around you is discouragement. If you can't see, ask Jesus to help you see. So watch this. The challenge standing in front of you can be your greatest opportunity to see beyond what you normally see. I'm going to say that slow. The challenge standing in front of you can be your greatest opportunity to see beyond what you normally see. How many of you would agree, I'm tired of the same old challenges? Like I'm just, I can almost tell you when they're going to show up. I can, I can I feel them coming a mile away. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You tired of that yet? You don't have to be there. Discouragement is not one of the fruits of the Spirit. Neither is disappointment. They're the bugs trying to steal your fruit. They might need a little diatomaceous earth. For all you gardening people. So what if that challenge standing in front of you is your greatest opportunity? Let me see if I can give you an example. Challenges can be like your car's ignition. Okay? A challenge can be like the ignition in your car. You can, it can either crank you up and get you going, or it can kill you and keep you parked. What you going to do with the key? It's summertime. You get in the car. That car needs to already be cranked. Come on, somebody. Greatest invention in the world is I can pull my phone out and crank my truck from my phone while I'm sitting in the Freon in my house. And then the Freon in my truck gets cranked up and it starts to cool the place off. And I got 15 whole minutes to go from my house to the truck. And I take about 14 and a half so that the Freon in the truck can level out with the Freon in the house so that when I leave the house and get in the truck, I'm not Freon deprived. Are deficient. You feel me? <laughs> That's right. You call it what you want. I'm cool. <laughs> as long as I remember to start my truck before I go to get in it. <laughs> That's the hard part right now. <laughs> so number one, miracles are attractive. Number two, the challenge is a test. Number three, the right attitude can unlock your, unlock your lack. The right attitude can unlock your lack. I'm going to tell you right now, Jesus gives us one of the greatest examples ever in this story 
Verse 11. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. Afterward, he did the same with the fish. And they ate, they all, say all, all ate as much as they wanted. I want you to notice what Jesus took. Jesus took Philip's impossible. He took Andrew's not enough. And he lifted it up to the Father. And he gave thanks for it. And then he distributed it. I said, he took Philip's impossible, Andrew's not enough, and he gave thanks for it. Uh-oh, something needs to change. Look at yourself, your hand maybe, and say something needs to change. Something, something like something really needs to change. Like me and you need to have a talk. <laughs> Just no. Talk to Jesus, not your hand. Watch this now. You might want to write this one down, or it may be in your notes already. God will never bless ungratefulness. He doesn't multiply ungratefulness. It's not a fruit that gets reseeded. Did you hear me? He will never bless ungratefulness. Because if he blesses ungratefulness, that blessing is going to multiply the ungratefulness. Ah, it's like spoiling a child. If you give them the reward and they didn't take out the trash, you're teaching them that I don't have to do what you say. I just got to look a certain way and I still get the reward. Ow, my goodness. Some of you need to get rid of your ungratefulness and walk into some blessings that God has for you because God's never going to bless your ungratefulness. What if you started appreciating what is good and stopped depreciating everything else? Because he's not going to bless ungratefulness. Jesus' example is so good. He takes the not enough and gives thanks for the not enough, then multiplies the not enough until it's more than enough. Oh my goodness. Did you catch that? So, so tomorrow, when you find yourself looking at a situation or a challenge and it seems like you don't have enough, just take whatever you got, bring it to Jesus with thanksgiving, and watch him take your not enough be grateful for you're not enough and multiply you're not enough until it's more than enough. Mm. What an attitude Jesus shows us today. He didn't complain that he only had five loaves and two fish to work with. He didn't throw a tantrum and say, well, I guess we ain't feeding the people today. He didn't blame shift to the disciples for not having enough faith to believe for that or to go and get it. Jesus just took whatever they gave him and he acted on it. He was 
grateful for it. What an attitude lesson. What if the change you're longing for in your life is waiting on your attitude to change first? I'm about to run around the church. What if the change you find yourself begging God for is waiting first for your attitude to change? How do we change our attitude? I want to give you something practical. How do we change, like, how, like, pastor, like, for real, like, how do we actually change my attitude? How do I change my attitude? Do I just strain? Do I just say different words? Like, how do I change my, do I fake it till I make it, pastor? Like, how do I actually change my attitude? How does this stinking attitude change? Y'all ask good questions. One of the ways we change our attitude is when we dialogue with Jesus about us. Because there's some of you in the room that are aware that you have a bad attitude. But then there's another group of us in this room who don't believe we have a bad attitude. Even though that within itself is an attitude. Well, what if I don't think I have an attitude? I would encourage you to get along with Jesus, much like David did, and say, Lord, is there something in my heart? I give you permission to examine my heart. If there's something in there, in fact, if there's anything in there that's displeasing to you, would you show it to me so that we can get rid of it? Start there. And have yourself a piece of paper, and a sharp pencil, baby, because there's going to be more in it than you think. You might be shocked. Because sometimes your attitude is keeping people from talking to you about your attitude. Well, you know, they, they have an attitude all the time about that. Yeah, I know, but if you talk to them about their attitude, you're going to get more attitude. Show us quiet in this Pentecostal church. Just start dialoguing with Jesus about your attitude. I, I, the other day, I was I was in traffic and I thought I conquered this demon. I thought I, I thought I had the you know the anger demon, the interstate anger demon. I thought he was gone. And we were driving back from Austin after we had a staff refresh. I was supposed to be refreshed, and we were trying to get home, so I was supposed to be like feeling the holy of holies inside of me. And we got into traffic between Houston and Beaumont. And, and people in Texas used to know how to drive; they done forgot. I I think it's all the Californians moving in and they're just wrecking the place. Like, I'd love to live in Texas, but I don't know now. Like, those people can't drive. So we're on the interstate and I find, I don't even realize, but my blood pressure starts coming up. My heart rate increases. I'm white knuckling the steering wheel. And before you know it, I'm growling. And Cheryl will do this. She'll put her hand on my arm and she'll kind of stroke my arm. I'm like, just get out the way. 
just being vulnerable. Pray for me. So that happened coming back from Texas. Then a couple of days later, we were going to celebrate somebody in Lafayette and we were driving on I-10 between Rain and Lafayette and I found myself going, I knew it wasn't good. A couple of days later in my quiet time, the Lord said, I need to talk to you about something. I was like, crap. Yes, sir. I'm just like a kid when I get in trouble. Yes, sir. I didn't like that attitude. It's not life-giving. It doesn't reflect me. I don't like that attitude. Yes, sir. So since then, I drive on the interstate. Instead of growling, I pray in tongues. But I talked to Jesus about my attitude. I asked him, why did his attitude come back out? He said, well, it's been in there. It's just coming out because it's time for it to go. I don't like it, and I want it to leave. So one of the ways we change our attitudes is to dialogue with Jesus about it. If you don't think you have an attitude, ask him to show you if you do and have yourself a a paper and a piece of pen, a a piece of paper and a pencil and get ready to write. And if you know you have an attitude, take that, take what you know, bring it to Jesus. He may show you something else, but whatever you do, dialogue with Jesus about your attitude. Another way to change your attitude is to dialogue with dialogue with others with a better attitude. That's going to require some humility because we're always trying to measure up with people. Well, well, if if I admit that they have a better attitude, then that means I have a lesser attitude. I don't know if I like having a lesser attitude. So in order to measure up, I'm not going to talk to them at all. You see, my two favorite generations are the two generations in front of me. I love hanging out with older people because there's a wisdom They've had, they've had the hell beat out of them. Life has, has drug them up and down the street and slapped them a couple of times. And they've made all kinds of stupid mistakes. And now they're on the back end of their life. And their attitude, they've had a major attitude adjustment. And they, and they see life a little bit different. And they have a better attitude about things. And they even look at, at, at what Fox News is screaming and CNN is, anyway. And, and they, they, they're looking at all this and they're going, ain't getting caught up in that. It's been that way for 50 years. I love getting around people with a better attitude because when I experience their attitude towards something, it it influences my attitude. That's why I don't have negative friends. If I do, I keep them at a distance. That's rude. Oh, no, that's not. That's wise. You see, we're good at knowing who the people are that will agree with us, whether we're right or wrong. But what if we get honest with ourselves and start discovering who has a better attitude than us and isn't afraid to disagree with us and we start getting around them 
Oh, I wish I had some more time. So get around those folks and dialogue your challenges. Now, I want you to notice something in the story. Jesus has absolutely no fear with five loaves and two fish trying to feed 5,000 men. I've never fed 5,000 men. I don't know what it takes. I would imagine it takes a lot. Jesus had no fear with five loaves and two fish. Let me show it to you. Let me prove it to you. He had no fear because he gave no restrictions. He had no fear because he put no limitations on how much each person could have. We tend to walk in fear and put limitations and restrictions on things. Jesus doesn't walk in that fear. He took the five loaves, gave thanks for them, broke them up, put them in baskets, took the two fish, lifted them to heaven, gave thanks for them, broke them up, put them in the baskets, and he sent them out and, and, and didn't even give any instructions, like, go give the people the food. He had no fear, no restrictions, no, no limitations, no, he didn't give them any instructions, just go pass the food out. Oh my gosh, what if Jesus is trying to just pass something to you, but you're limiting and restricting your own self? The Bible says they all ate as much as they wanted. And it also says they were full. Now, Jesus knows how to multiply better than anyone else does. Can I get an amen? So number four, Jesus goes above and beyond but never wastes. He goes above and beyond but never wastes. Verse 12 and 13 says, after everyone was what? Say it with me. After everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, now gather up the leftovers so nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled, how many baskets? How many disciples? Hmm. Filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. Oh, man, one day we're going to realize Jesus is more than enough. He knows, to, he knows how to go above and beyond, but he never wastes anything. After everyone was full, Jesus tells the disciples to pick up the leftovers so nothing is wasted. Why did he tell them to pick up the leftovers? Why didn't he leave it with the hungry people? Why didn't he let the 5,000 people take the leftovers home? They had to travel home, too. Why did he decide to make the disciples pick up the leftovers? Why did Jesus take his leftovers home? Come on, somebody. People come to your house sometime with a good dessert, and they take it home, and you're going, why you took that home? Why? This would have been a good time to say, would you like some? <laughs> why didn't Jesus let them have the leftovers? Why make the disciples pick them up? That's more work. That's not even being efficient. 
So they had to go out there and distribute the food. And once everybody ate, they had to go back and pick up the food. Are you starting to see it? Why? But why, Jesus? Why would you do it this way? Like, like come on, like, why? Couldn't they have the leftovers? Why did the disciples have to pick up the leftovers? What if they didn't even like the bread? <laughs> That's when people won't leave stuff at your house when it didn't turn out good. <laughs> They're like, y'all want this? No, girl, we good. <laughs> no, I've had enough, I've had enough. <laughs> you see, Jesus was showing the generous nature of God. And he invited, catch this, he invited the disciples to participate in the miracle. It's the same thing he's doing today. It's the same thing you're going to wake up to tomorrow. When your feet hit the ground tomorrow, your eyes open up and your feet hit the ground, Jesus already has an invitation for you to participate with him in advancing his kingdom in this region that we live in. He loves for us to participate in miracles. Without their participation, the miracle may not have happened. Because I don't think the miracle was designed just to be a miracle. What if the miracle was designed to be a moment? An experience. What if the miracle or the challenge was designed to become a miracle, to become a moment that they would have a tangible experience with Jesus that would never leave them, that no one could ever convince them otherwise, not even Satan himself. What if they, the miracle was designed to give them a moment with Jesus to get something that could never be taken away from them? We read about the miracles. They lived the miracles. But still today, Jesus is inviting us to participate in miracles, and it's more often than you think. In fact, I would tell you it's every single day there's a miracle that Jesus wants to do in the people around you if you'll just open your eyes and open your heart. Look at Proverbs eleven twenty four real quick. It says, there is one who scatters yet increases more. And there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. When you withhold yourself from Jesus's orders or Jesus's commands or his instructions, when you withhold yourself from his invitation to participate, you become impoverished. It's called poverty of the spirit. You become poor in the spirit, not in a good way, because you're depleted of an experience that you needed. You see, I believe that Jesus likes for us to handle some things. He likes for us to touch some things. Jesus likes for us to carry baskets.
Dave Ramsey teaches don't use a credit card anymore because you swipe it, put it back in your pocket, and you never lost anything. He, he encourages people to use cash because when you give cash, it gets taken away from you because you've held it and something got taken from you, so it changes your mindset when it comes to money. What if Jesus wants us to practically handle miracles so that something inside of us starts to shift? Oh. They needed to feel it. Oh, man. I also believe they took the leftovers with them and ate it on the next few days. <laughs> As a reminder of what they just experienced. If they were like me, they were probably like, oh, bro, we're going to be eating bread for a week. Bro, like I like bread, but like, man. <laughs> but kill me a deer on the way. <laughs> Give me some meat to stuff in that bread. Make me a sandwich. You see, what's cool is that they each took home their own basket. Peter had a basket. Philip had a basket. Andrew had a basket. John had a basket. They all had their own basket. You got a basket. You see, those who serve get to carry baskets. They get to carry miracles. Let me show it to you on a Sunday. There's people serving today. There's people carrying baskets today. There's people over there in that building with a bunch of kids. And they're carrying baskets. There's people who were in the parking lot to tell you where to park so that you would have a great experience when you got into the building. They're carrying baskets. There's people that are learning music and have the ability to sing, and they're doing it with their guts hanging out, and it's because they're carrying a basket. When you carry a basket, you get to carry miracles. But when you don't want to serve and you don't want to get out of your comfort, you ain't carrying nothing but yourself. They're carrying bas they get to carry a basket. They got to get involved with a miracle. Ah! <laughs> we get to get involved with miracles. On Sunday, you get to serve. You get to carry a basket. In your home, you get to serve. You get to carry a basket. In your neighborhood, when you serve, you carry a basket. Come on, man. And we sit around thinking, oh, I got to serve today. Oh, I got to pick up behind these kids again. Oh. Stupid neighbors doing this again. Oh, this and that. And we're complaining about the opportunity to carry a miracle. And we're just walking around complaining. Oh, I'm discouraged. Kids never do anything right. Oh, I'm discouraged. Neighbor keeps throwing his clippings in my yard. Oh, I'm discouraged. They want me to serve at church again. So-and-so can't ever show up when they're supposed to serve. So now I got to take their place. I'm the next person in line. I'm so tired of serving. What you're really saying is, is I'm tired of carrying a miracle. I'm tired of carrying a basket. I'm tired of doing what Jesus told me to do. 
I'm tired, I'm tired, I'm tired. You want to know what tired is? Walk with Jesus. If anybody had the right to be tired, it was Jesus. We get to. I get to pastor this church. I get to come here most Saturdays and work my stinking tail off cleaning this place. I get to. Why? Because I'm carrying a basket. I shot back every square inch of these floors yesterday. I don't know why I did it. Just felt like it needed to be shot backed. I shot back, sat here with, with, I didn't even have the big spread out thing. I just had the little skinny pipe, but I, I put a couple of them together so I wouldn't have to bend over so I could stand up and preach today. And I'm just dragging that thing all over the floor, humming a song, peace under there, doing all this. Why? Because I had no clue Macy was going to tell us to take our shoes off. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> but when you don't serve, what are you carrying? Yourself. I don't know about you. I get tired of trying to carry myself. I'm heavy. <laughs> you see, the people that day that walked away most blessed were not the 5,000 who got fed. It was the 12 who carried the baskets. Why? Because not only did they get to carry a miracle, they got to go home full with more than enough, above and beyond, that was not going to be wasted. For that next week, I guarantee you they were sitting there, and I saw this when I was studying this, and this is what I would do. I'd be sitting there breaking that bread off, and I would be eating it, and my mind would be like, wow. Wow. What an experience. How did that happen? Like, how did he take five loaves and two fish? And that's a lot of people. I'd have gone to Peter and said, bro, you're a fisherman. Like, how's that happen, bro? I'd be like, man, what did we just experience? For a week or so, I'd be eating on that miracle. Gotta hurry up. Some of you getting hungry talking about all this food. <laughs> so the people that walked away that day with the greatest experience was not the 5,000, it was the disciples. It was the basket carriers. You see, write this down. Multiplication is a beast. It's a big old beast. Multiplication is a beast. How did he do that? I wonder, I wonder what you have that Jesus wants to multiply. I wonder what you have that seems to not be enough that Jesus just wants to get his hands on it, give thanks for it, and multiply it. 
Number five, those that sat were filled. Those that sat down were filled. This is a very important lesson in this story. Verse 10, Jesus gives these instructions. He says, tell everyone to sit down. Jesus said, so they all sat down on the grassy slope and the men alone numbered about 5,000. So Jesus told the disciples to tell the crowd to sit down. So Jesus gave instructions to the leaders to tell the people what to do. I want you to catch this. Jesus told the 12 to tell the 5,000 to sit down, but only those that sat down were filled. You see, today, only those who sit down when Jesus says to sit down get filled. Verse 12 tells us that they ate, they all ate until they were full. Let me show you something. That word full is the Greek word filled, which is the word impletho, which means this. Watch this. This is how it's defined in the Greek. To fill in the empty spots, to fill in, to satisfy, here's the good one, to be full like the abundance of the rich. So when it says they were full, they just didn't have like a little sense of being stuffed. Like they had a sense of being, we ate the goods. We had the good stuff. We were, we were full like the rich get You see, Jesus has a habit of filling the obedient. Because behind every act of obedience lies a rich fulfillment that births a satisfaction inside of you. But it's only on the other side of your obedience. You never get it before the obedience. Come on now, you're not gonna get it until you obey. When temptation comes knocking at my door, I don't get the blessing on the front end. I get the blessing on the back end when I kick the devil in the nose and tell him to leave in the name of Jesus. Then the blessing comes. I wonder if they refused to sit if Jesus would have refused to feel. I'm not sitting down. He gonna feed me standing up. You don't tell me what to do. You remember that attitude we was talking about earlier? <laughs> I can see Jesus going, okay, you don't want to sit, you don't eat. Because remember, he don't bless ungratefulness, but he also doesn't bless disobedience. And he surely don't want to multiply that. But he tells the disciples to tell the people to sit down. Now, what if the disciples don't want to tell the people? Well, I shouldn't have to tell them to sit down. They're smart people. They should know that on their own. If they're not smart enough to sit down when everybody else sits down, then it's so bad for them. Is that what Jesus said? 
He said, if they're wise enough, watch them sit down. No, he said, go tell them to sit down. Well, shouldn't they know how to do that? Couldn't Jesus have gone? So if the disciples don't obey, the people probably don't sit down. If the people don't sit down, the miracle likely doesn't happen. So if the disciples wouldn't obey, then the people wouldn't obey. That's parenting 101. If you ain't going to listen to Jesus, your children ain't going to listen to you. Y'all saw that one fly over? You better grab it. The disciples had to obey before the people would obey. I wonder why Jesus told them to tell them to sit down. One thing I know about Jesus is he loves to establish order. There's, Jesus likes for things to go a certain way. It's called his way. And most of us in this room have an issue at times with his way. Can I get an amen? So Jesus has them sit down because he wants to bring things under order, under his order. Are you catching this? Only when my life comes under his order does it get filled. Because he don't bless ungratefulness. He don't bless disobedience. But buddy, let me tell you something. When you come under Jesus' order for your life, when it's have your way, not my way, when it's, Lord, I surrender, I give you all of me, and it's not a worship song that you're singing on a Sunday morning. It's something you're saying on Monday morning. It's a Monday morning faith. Only when your life comes under his order does it get filled. Think about Gideon. So those that were sat, those that sat were filled. Number six, last one. I'm going to wrap it up. The crowd is hungry for miracles once again. I feel this in my spirit. The people around me feel this in their spirit. I believe we're sitting in a moment right now in America where everything that people have been feeding on is not filling them. We're entering into a season where even social media itself cannot fill people. Even porn cannot fill people. I believe people are hungry for miracles once again. Look at John verse 14. I'm going to read it to you from the Passion Translation. It says, all the people were astounded as they saw with their own eyes the incredible miracle Jesus had performed. They began to say among themselves, watch this, he really is the one. He, not all of this. He really is the one, the prophet we've been expecting. I want you to hear something this morning. 
you live with a crowd of people in your life. For some of you, that's 10. For others of you, it may be a couple hundred. But you have a crowd in your life. Every one of you does. You have a crowd. No matter what size the crowd, Jesus wants to feed your crowd. And you're the disciple that's either standing there like Philip or you're standing there like Andrew. And you've either come to a conclusion that it's not going to happen or you've come to the conclusion that I got something, but what is it compared to this? Jesus still wants to feed your crowd. There are people in your crowd that aren't in my crowd. Jesus wants to feed your crowd something real. He's just waiting for you to bring whatever you have and allow him to use it. Maybe it's just a heartbeat and a breath. Maybe he's waiting on you to change your attitude about what little you have. But I want you to hear these words this morning. The whole time you're struggling with your lack or your attitude, people are starving for something supernatural. The only thing that qualifies you to move in the supernatural is to be born again. A degree will mess you up. A certificate will pride you up. The only thing you need is to be born again. If you had enough faith to be born again, you got enough faith for miracles to happen. Is your crowd starving? Are they malnutritioned? I want you to look around at the people in your crowd this week and see what they're feeding on. And I want you to ask Jesus to show you with spiritual eyes what, they, what their condition or their health looks like. And you'll probably be surprised to find that they're malnutrition. You see, Jesus is the Lord over your lack. But the lack is not your Lord. And he'll prove it to you while he proves it to the crowd around you that he is the Lord over your lack. There's only one way it gets proven. It's an experiential way. So in a world full of people who are tired of being fed lies and letdowns, how about we be the ones who feed them with something real and life-giving? I'm going to say that again. 
in a world full of people who are tired of being fed lies and letdowns, be the one who feeds them something real and life-giving. So I want some of my intercessory team to, to come up. We're going to give you an opportunity. I know I've, I went long. I'm not going to apologize for that. I believe when Jesus is in the room, you hang out as long as he wants to hang out. How dare you leave before Jesus does? <laughs> That's rude. So I, I know for a fact that some of you in this room, in fact, most of you in this room, as I was preaching, the Holy Spirit was showing you some areas that you have a bad attitude. Or areas that you have a neutral attitude. It's kind of an I don't care attitude. And he wants to change your attitude today. He wants to give you an attitude of faith attitude that'll take whatever you've got in your hands and say, you know what, in Jesus' hands this can multiply. Even though I can't see what it can become, I'm going to put this in Jesus' hands. But first, I'm going to be grateful for it. So for some of you this morning, this is going to be a moment of, of confession and repentance where you admit to the Lord that you've had a bad attitude. You've been ungrateful. You've been complaining. You talk more about what's not good than what is good. You whine. Just keep getting these words. You murmur. You get downcast, which means this, that your face droops down, and you walk down with a babin, budayan. Speak your language a little bit. So for some of you today, this is going to be a moment of confession and repentance. How do I do that? You just you can come up to, to one of these prayer people. You can come up to the altar and take care of it with Jesus yourself, whatever you want. But you just come to some place and you say, Lord, my attitude is, it stinks. And I know you don't like it. But I'm having a hard time changing it. I admit that I have a bad attitude. I confess that. I turn from that today. I don't want that attitude anymore. I want your attitude. Maybe that's what you need to do. For others of you this morning, you found yourself when I was sitting on the stage, you really related to that because you, the Holy Spirit showed you that you've been sitting behind discouragement. You've been sitting behind disappointment. One disappointment after another, after another, after another. And it's got you sitting in a pit that you were never designed for. You don't belong there. So maybe you need to come up and let somebody pray for you. Maybe you need to trust that somebody up here can cast that off of you. 